But if you look at the South, the South has actually taught the rest of the country the importance of the vote. And in fact, the Black vote in the South has actually turned the tides in terms of shifting power. When you look at the concentration of Black power in the South, it has been because Black voters have turned out churches primarily, social organizations, civic leaders, especially educators, have, have, have voted. My name's Janice Abair. I'm a recently retired assistant U.S. attorney. I had 23 years at the Department of Justice. Some of the work that I did was civil rights um, in both Louisiana and Oregon. So the producers of this podcast asked me to be a guest host today. They tell me that the mission of this podcast is to share stories and historical information to help understand elections. And today, what I was hoping we would do is focus on how systemic and structural discrimination has diminished the electorate, discouraged people from voting, and, and hopefully we can get some insight from a professional and expert on the matter as to what we can do about it. So we've got the great benefit of having with us today Dr. Yvette Alex Asenso. She's the Vice President of Equity and Inclusion at the University of Oregon. She's an award-winning researcher. She's a university professor. And uh, most importantly, for our purposes here today, she's from Brobridge, Louisiana. I'm also from Louisiana, so we have a lot in common. Welcome, Yvette. Thank you for being part of the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. We both have shared Louisiana experiences growing up in a place that has um, great history of challenges with discrimination and misogyny and lots of great food, lots of great culture, lots of great music, but it's intermixed with some problems. And I think that might have brought me to my career. And I was wondering if that kind of influenced how you got on the path that you're on. I think you're right about that. I hadn't given much thought to it, but I recall growing up listening to my parents' stories around the dinner table and one thing that they always impressed upon me was the importance of individual agency and that one person can really affect change in important ways, not only for themselves, but for others around them. So I, I agree with you. I think I think that uh, those stories and also the, the positive vision that they had for individual change thrust me into this type of career. Well, that, that's certainly been the case for me, too. Um, and even once I started working in the U.S. Attorney's Office doing some civil rights work, among other kinds of work, but that, that was the most satisfying and the most striking for me and really big eye-opener because I don't think I, I don't think we were provided with a great education about Louisiana's history in the public schools. Uh, did you go to a public school in Louisiana? Yes, Brobridge High School. Brobridge High School. Grand Point Rule. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. I worked on a, a civil rights case out of Brobridge, and it was uh, it was brought against a Cajun dance club. It was an old, old Cajuns uh, going out. And, and when I say old, I mean the elderly. There was a senior population. It was their club. And um, it was called La Poussière. And, and I think I'd asked you about it, and you, you're not familiar with it. But it was in downtown Brobridge. And some... Um, Assistant U.S. attorneys from Chicago came down interested in seeing some of the Cajun culture. And because of the color of their skin, they were denied entry. And they were just astounded that that had happened. This was in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I went down there, I was like, oh, I, I thought it was going to be very rural, very fringy, not 
it turns out it was in downtown Brobridge. And I thought, <laughs> how can that be? But it did. It, we coexisted with all of that overt discrimination. And I, I wonder how that, I, I don't wonder because I, I saw it, but it was just striking to me that that could exist and, and, um, and people could still go about their daily lives. And, you know, and I, I think if you can't get into the local Cajun dance hall in the downtown of where you live, then are you really going to show up at the voting polls on election day? Maybe not, you know, maybe, maybe you, you need some motivation to get that done when you don't have people showing up at the polls uh, to vote in their interests then you end up with a different kind of government, different kinds of policies. And what are, what are some other effects that you think that has when people actually don't show up at the polls? It, it depends on, on different kinds of mobilization. But to answer your question and then get back to, to that, I think it, it has an impact on the ability to uh, get a good education because property taxes play a large role in that, the school board. But I, I also think it affects the way in which the criminal justice process unfolds, because you have judges and you have police chiefs and sheriffs who, who, are, who are elected in those processes. In general, what we know about the South is that what existed was sort of like what you, what you witnessed in the Le Poussier case. And that is the idea of structures that impede progress or access to the polls. And so just a story that I grew up hearing my mom talk about in Greensburg, Louisiana, was that folks were were actually lynched. I mean, there was structural violence that prevented people from getting to the polls. And in addition to the sort of general lynching to prevent folks, decades after that, 1965, uh, 1964, 1968 voting rights acts were put in place. Folks were given the right to vote but then we're subject to all kinds of chicanery. So one story that I remember hearing was a black man who was given money to vote a certain way. And he took the money with the understanding that he was not going to vote that way. He ended up voting the other way, but dying because that was an example to that small community that you don't fool around with, with the law here. Now, in addition to that, I do think that there are populations and segments of populations that don't vote because they're they're disengaged, they're demobilized, and don't really understand the important impact that one vote can make. But if you look at the South, the South has actually taught the rest of the country the importance of the vote. And in fact, the Black vote in the South has actually turned the tides in terms of shifting power when you look at the concentration of Black power in the South, it has been because Black voters have turned out churches primarily, social organizations, civic leaders, especially educators have, have, have voted. My parents own a small business, and I know that during the, the Obama administration, for example, that business was turned into a site of, of getting the vote out. And that business was used, right, free of charge to make sure that that folks got out, got out to vote. So th there are the structures, but it, it's, it's amazing the way that people have voted in spite of them. One of the things that I've been seeing people talk about recently is term limits to get, you know, well, it's not just recently you hear about it every once in a while when, when there's dissatisfaction in, uh, with our elected um, officials. And to me, 
that really is a condemnation of the electorate. If, if you need to get somebody out by term limiting them, then you're not expecting the electorate to show up and represent their interest, right? So maybe this time around, maybe we've really uh, opened some eyes and awakened some people to understanding the importance of um, exercising their right to vote. And, and maybe we'll turn a corner on that. But I, I'm still waiting to see if that's really going to work. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because one, one of the, the real structural barriers or interesting phenomena in America is this notion of the two-party system. When you look at European democracies, there's the parliamentary system, which actually forces or compels people to work together and building consensus and building government. But in the United States, you have this stark sense of winners and losers so that there is very little incentive to work together. And I think that also discourages people who find themselves uh, wedded to a particular position and knowing that the other party's not representing them. So it's disempowering to them. Uh, we saw that in 2008, right, with uh, Obama being elected, that a lot of folks stayed home. It wasn't just that people voted for him, but people stayed home because they felt like neither party was really going to provide support for them. And, and, and so you wonder, what can we do about that, especially since democracy doesn't necessarily mean only two party systems. It means a variety of ways to be democratic. You wrote an article that really caught my eye, marching forever, but going nowhere. But you had some ideas. You came up with some <laughs> recommendations, which I really was loving so much. <laughs> you spoke about empathy and anti-racist actions um, as, as a way to make changes uh, to systemic racism. We need to hear your advice on this. We need insight. We need to know what are our next steps now that we've had an eye-opening realization in the pandemic summer of 2020 about how awful so many of our citizens have been treated for so very long. And we, we seem to have the motivation, the energy, and we're going to put some resources to it. What do we do, Yvette? What's the, what's the best next steps for us to use this energy and this um, momentum that we've got going? What do we do? I think there, there's no silver bullet to addressing this issue. But one offering that I have is simple, and it is self-awareness. As Americans, I think as people in general, members of the human race, right? when we see dilemmas and things that are problematic and traumatic for us, we want to immediately problem solve and make them right. We want to set it right straight away. This is no different right? with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the many others who died before them who got no news coverage. My view is that we need to step back as individuals and understand our particular role in the larger structure of American racism, to just use this particular context as, as a starting point. And what I mean by that is that our country traditionally focuses on colorblindness, this idea that to even talk about race or to talk about racism makes you racist. You're starting something, you're being divisive, you're being political. But the fact of the matter is that race is part of everyone's identity and race has for some folks, created advantages, for others, disadvantages. All of us, don't get me wrong, have privilege. No matter how low we are in America, generally speaking, 
we are more privileged than many in other countries. Even if we take, for example, something as basic as democracy and the ability to speak out against government without retribution, that used to be a sacred right in American society. Increasingly, it's not. When we talk about ending racism, we actually cannot do it until each individual understands his or her or their role in that process. So as a Black person, the first thing that I need to think about is what is my role in upholding or in undermining racism? And I suggest that we do that through four values, love, authenticity, courage, and empathy. And the first step of that is love. Because when we think about love, love is the master value. It has the ability to transform, to undo, to engage, to bring folks together in ways that we could not even imagine. And what I mean by love is the uh, driving force that is concerned about the well-being of others in ways that build value. So if we think about race and we think about what does it mean to love, love means, first of all, understanding the truth, because we can't engage in well-being for ourselves and others until we understand the truth. And the truth in America is that we are a country that has racialized politics. We have gender is very important in politics. So if we only look at those two things, race and gender, what has been my role? What is my understanding of the way in which race and gender have fashioned the vote? And we look at something like authenticity. What does it mean? What are my most sacred values? For me, Curiosity is an important value of mine. What does it mean to be curious about issues of race and gender in politics? Curiosity causes us to move the assumptions aside and to really dig in. You know, looking at the Senate, looking at uh, the House of Representatives, looking at who is represented. Where are the women? Where are the women of color? Where are the women of this political uh, ideology as opposed to what role does curiosity play in that? as opposed to just saying, well, my mom and dad said that, and all the people in my social network say that, and so that's what I believe. Then we, we move forward to courage. Courage is this idea of being who we are afraid to be and doing what we are afraid to do. So it's this idea of moving through fear. What are the courageous actions that we know about, that we see, that we can think about for ourselves as it relates to this notion of getting out to vote? What does it mean to vote our own conscience, even if that conscience transcends the consciences of folks that we hang with? What does it mean to have our own political identities within our understanding of race and gender? Those are all simple notions of courage. And then this idea of empathy is holding space for someone, holding space so that you're listening into their experiences their ways of thinking, not necessarily so that you can agree, but so that you can understand that their values, their experiences have value too. Empathy is kind of the buzzword for the day. The New York Times did an article on here's four or five people who can help you work on empathy. The point that was made, and maybe you've made this as well, was that empathy is not the same thing as sympathy. In fact, if you are being sympathetic, you are being other than. You are not looking at a problem from within the shoes or the eyes of the person that you're trying to empathize with. Mm -hmm. Now, you did say something that made me think, um, I didn't get a very good education in Louisiana either. I, I probably got a better education than you did. It was a 
um, uh, public education, mm -hmm. but I did not learn. Uh, my sister and I have recently had this conversation about mm -hmm. what we are learning now about Louisiana and the very land where we grew up mm -hmm. and the things, the horrendous, shameful, terrible things that happened on that land that happened where we lived that no one ever told us about. We did not know mm -hmm. the things that had happened. And I'm not going to say they were the recent past, but they were not that far in the past. When, you, when you're talking about the early 1900s and we went to school in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. that could and should have been taught to us. Mm -hmm. Now we're learning it shocked and appalled and aghast that we could move around in that space, a geographical area, and be unaware of the powerful things that had happened there before mm -hmm. us. Um, and I believe that if those those stories had been taught to me in, in the Louisiana public schools when I went, that would have been history. But really, it's politics, isn't it? Really, it's about um, government and the power of the vote and how exercising that right to vote could end up with you being lynched or could end up with you losing your livelihood or those sorts of things. So um, it is a tale about how the power that drives this whole country starts with the vote of one person. And if we aren't teaching kids today about what that means and the value of it, then shame on us because that's, that's how we end up in a place where people don't choose to exercise their right to vote or don't feel um, enfranchised in the electorate. I think it's so important for women to take their children to, to the polls with them. My husband and I did that with our boys. They actually, little bitty. You know, four and five years old, we got them up at five o'clock in the morning and took them to the polls and would raise them up and let them press the lever. And they still talk about that. It's so very important to help children understand that they have a variety of, of uh, ways to express their political preferences, but the vote is among the most important. So one of the things that the producers of the podcast um, have asked all the hosts to ask the guests is, what is your favorite thing that you've done or that you know that someone else has done to convince a recalcitrant voter to go out and vote? <laughs> I should have asked you. I should have given you a heads up on this because <laughs> you might have to give that some thought. I can tell you what I did. I took my middle child when she turned 18 we got dressed up and went out to vote and took a photo and then oh, went out to eat. That's, that's nice. what I did. I think if I hadn't done that, she probably maybe not would have gone to vote. <laughs> Even, eventually she would have, but, you know, an 18-year-old. So that's what I did. Can you think of anything? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned your children because we we have a similar situation with our kids in terms of, of – uh, how and why this election and whether or not the rationale is actually to vote at certain levels and not at others. Uh, and so the question is not whether or not they will vote. They will vote, but whether they will vote for use the entire uh, franchise uh, ability to vote in this particular election is, is something. And so my husband and I 
or just talking to them about the fact that why would you waste all of what you have and all of the impact that you can make uh, in this election? My husband has threatened to bribe them. (laughs) (laughs) But but I think in the end, they are going to vote. They, it, it's interesting. So that's on the individual level. I think on the on the sort of structural level, right? Organizationally, actually driving people to the polls. So folks who say, well, you know, they make an excuse, I can't get there. Uh, I don't feel like standing. And okay, I will be at your house at four thirty in the morning. We're going to make sure that we get to the polls when they open. Mm-hmm. So that's that is also important. And as a political scientist, helping the students to realize that one vote does matter and sharing with them some of the evidence of the counties and parishes in which one vote made a difference. So persuasion as a parent, mobilization as a community member, and then as an educator, just providing people with the information they need to make good choices. I love that. And I, I really hope that one of the takeaways from this this election is that even if your candidate loses, your vote carries some weight. You know, that's just that's just indisputable, and people just discount it. They 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 just uh, they figure if their candidate's losing, and that's one of the reasons why uh, they don't want to have pol- have uh, election results posted on the news before the polls are closed because they don't want to influence people in that way. Because if they, if it looks like your candidate's losing, then why go and vote? Well, because it matters. You still it should go does. and register your voice. Yes. Yes. Yvette, is there anything I've left out? I know we've got we've covered a wide range, <laughs> but is there anything um, that I haven't asked you about or that we haven't talked about that you think we should cover or that you want to say? Well, I, I just appreciate the opportunity to engage on these issues because what they help us to remember is that history is not in the past, that we actually are living, living not only the past history, but we're creating new history and that understanding what did not work in the past or what was problematic in the past will help us to avoid those things in the future if we're being astute. I also like the fact that we are intentionally leading into the difficulties of identity. You know, gender and race are things that we don't like to talk about in America, and the, but the more we talk about them, the better we get at discussing them and the better we get at understanding why it's necessary to, to change. So thank you so much for the conversation. Well, thank you for talking to me. It was as fun as always, but especially (laughs) fun today because we got to talk about home for good and bad. So thanks so much. Well, I'm going to ask you one last question. When you make gumbo, do you put tomatoes in it or not? No tomatoes. No tomatoes. That's that's legit, Yvette. I appreciate that. No tomatoes. I mean, I don't no know tomatoes. where anybody got tomatoes and gumbo from, man. Come on now. That's, That's New rude. Orleans. It's rude. It's wrong and it's rude. And it shouldn't be done. So I appreciate yeah. that. All right. Well, thanks, Yvette. Uh, I hope to see you soon. Likewise. Thank you. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on current and historical barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit our website, voting-now.com. Celia Howes is the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director. 
Miranda Schaefer is our producer, and Gabrielle Granillo is our senior editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann. I'm Janice Abair, and my guest was Dr. Yvette Alex Asenso. Thank you so much for listening.